0: Friends. Friends, we're discussing the Sikha of Mishpatim, in number four in volume 16. It's a fascinating Sikha in that it begins with a legal halachic discussion and then translates it into the mystical Hasidic side and takes a lesson from the legal side. Fascinating. So the Sikha introduces um, the following four principles in Jewish law, all derived from today's Torah portion. The first is called the law of modem, and mix makes us admitting partial guilt. If one admits partial guilt, they are caused to take an oath, denying the other half. The concept is that if somebody demands money from you, and you deny it. If you deny fully, and you walk off scot-free, biblically. The rabbis instituted a rabbinic oath, which is much lighter. But biblically, you walk off scot-free. It's your word against his word. Goodbye, good luck. But if you start admitting partial guilt, he says you owe him 100, he says, no, you only owe him 50. Now you're engaged, and now you he can schlep you to court and cause you to take an oath that you don't owe the second 50. There's also another case where someone denies, and they have to take an oath, and that is if there's one witness, if there's two witnesses who know that you owe the money, you got to pay them. It's like having a contract. But if there's only one witness, it's not strong enough to cause them to pay, but it's strong enough to cause them to take an oath. But back to our case, um, admitting partial guilt, again, there's no witnesses whatsoever. It's your word against mine. You say I owe you, I say I don't. Aha, but I didn't say I owe you nothing. I say I owe oh, you 50 out of the 100. You can now impose a, a biblical oath. I'm holding a Torah scroll. The candles are lit. God's name is evoked. It's a very serious thing, a very powerful thing, very scary thing. Most decent people would not take it in vain, God forbid. And this is the Torah's way of finding out the truth. And the, the logic of this is explained in the Talmud. And that is this. You approach me and tell me I you owe you money. So if I deny it completely, why should we assume I'm lying? Your word against mine. But if I admit partial guilt, we start to think hey, if I only owe you 50, why did you demand 100? Why would you lie? So there's a whole psychological thing at play here. The concept is that if you lent me money, I'm not going to have to look you in the eye and deny you. It's against human nature. We're talking about most people are decent people. We're assuming you're decent. Maybe you're not perfectly squeaky clean, but you're decent. So if you demand a hundred bucks for me, I'm not gonna look you in the eye and say, no, I don't. That's 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 pathological. However, I don't have the money now. Aha, so I'll come along and say, oh, you're a hundred. It was 50. And it's my way of buying time. Maybe I'll give you the 50, maybe you'll take me to court, maybe, pa. eventually I'm planning to pay, but I'm buying some time and the sages don't like that. In Jewish law, if you owe money, you gotta pay. Unless maybe you work out a deal, but bottom line you can't delay. Doesn't matter who, how rich you are, and how poor the other person is. If you owe, you got to pay. And therefore, the the Torah rules uh, that that being that I admitted fifty, I may just using it as a delay tactic, and you can impose a biblical oath on me in court that I don't owe you the second fifty. That's rule number one. Then there's a second rule, seemingly unrelated. And in any case between two people, let's say in a civil case, you're demanding something and I'm denying or vice versa, the plaintiff states their case first. This too is a biblical law based on a verse in today's portion, where Moses, when he ascended the mountain, he said, I'm leaving Aaron and Korah in charge. Whoever has an issue, approach them. And from those words, whoever has an issue, approach them, means to say that the one who has the issue, he gets to talk first. The one who brought the case. So it's not like the defendant gets to state his case, no. The plaintiff talks and then the defendant says what he has to say. Okay, fair enough. But then there's a discussion in Jewish law and the commentaries, what is the practical application of who speaks first, who cares? We know that that's how it has to be because that's what the Torah says. But is there a difference in Jewish law? And item number three, quoting from the commentary says, yes, there is a difference. There is a practical application And why it's so important that the plaintiff speaks first. What is that? Because if the defendant spoke first, let's use the case that you claim that I owe you $100 and I only admitted 50. If we walk into court and I speak first and I say, you know what, before anything happens, Your Honor, I want you to know I do owe him 50 bucks, then you would not be able to impose that biblical oath upon me because I didn't admit partial guilt. I put forth full guilt. Now you come and say, By the way, no, he owes me $100. i am not considered one who's admitting partial guilt. And therefore, I can get off scot-free without the oath. And therefore, the law is that, no, you get to speak first. I admit partial guilt to put me in the corner, to set me up that I should have to take that oath. Because we want him to have to take the oath. And why? Why does Torah want me to take the oath? Why should I have to take the oath? Why should I be at a disadvantage? Maybe I should get to speak first. I'll admit 50 and walk away without the oath. Why do you get the edge? And the answer is because the minute you walk into a court and admit that you owe 50 bucks, there's a red flag here. You owed him 50 bucks. So why did he have to stop you in a court? Why didn't you just pay him? The deadline was last week. Aha, you're hiding something. You did something wrong. You're trying to buy for time. No, we're not going to allow you to get away with this with being a nice guy a week late you're, 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 we're going to let him talk first. We'll let you deny half and admit partial guilt. And now you'll have to have an oath because we, we, we don't see you as a squeaky clean, honest person. You've proven that you're not. Just by the very fact that you came and admitted that you owe some money, which you should have paid before you were brought to court. But then there's number four, an exception to number two, an exception to the fact that plaintiff speaks first, in order to to, uh, to create the scenario of item number three on your screen, that I should have to have an oath imposed upon me. So Torah law imposes me that I should only speak second so that I should have to give the oath because I did something wrong by delaying and being schlepped to court. There's an exception to that. The exception can be that I can walk into court and I can say, Your Honor, I own the 50 bucks and the court will say, I don't have to take an oath, and that's okay. When is that? When last week, when I owed him the money, the market crashed. And the money I owed, I would have to start selling off assets. Or, conversely, if my selling off assets wouldn't make the value crash on that particular item, let's say it was a large amount of money. So... Last week, I didn't come forth. And now it's a week later, and now the assets are stabilized. So now it makes sense that I delayed not coming to court, not because I'm hiding something or I'm not honest, but because it just would be unfair for me to have to sell off my assets. Boom, exactly on the week when the value goes down, it's going to hurt me too much. And therefore, Torah cuts him some slack. Yes, he should have paid last week and not wait till this week or this month. And he schleps the court it's true, but there's some logic why he did it. That was a bad time for him. His value, his assets devalued tremendously, and it would have been a bad time, and it makes human nature for him to delay a little bit. But now, when he comes forth and he says, I owe you $50, if he gets to put in his words first, that's okay. And we let him walk away without the oath, and we don't have a reason to believe that he lied. That's the legal side of the scene. And um, the Rebbe says that everything in Torah and Halach and legal also has spiritual application. Because Torah has a body and a soul, the halachic and the mystical, if you will, and they go hand in hand. Says the Rabbi, what is the spiritual side of this conversation? The law of a mix as one who admits partial guilt. is a story of each of us. We all have a Yetzirah who makes claims against us and argues that we're in his hands, that we own money, that we own, that we're his. How so? Because the proof is he got us to do a sin. He got us to entertain wrong character, jealousy, angry, envy, lust, what have you, or even actually act out on a sin. He got us to do it. Everyone on some level has been in the hands of the Yitzhahara. So the Yitzhahara is demanding, is claiming ownership of it all. He's the one who walks to the court and says, you owe me everything. You're mine. Proof is you failed you meaning the person, the divine soul, Your mind, mine, you're in my hands, comes along the soul, the neshamah, the yitzatob, and says, no, I'm only admitting partial guilt. Yes, you may have succeeded in getting me to fail with this or that or the other. However, there's still many other sins I never did, I never would do. Plus, I'm doing many mitzvahs. So even though I did that sin, I didn't stop doing mitzvahs. Plus, even when I did the sin, or failed in the character sin, I didn't feel good about it. I didn't feel, oh, wow, that was great that I, that I told a lie. That was great that I was, that, I, that, I, that, that I was angry. I don't feel good about it at all. I feel terrible. So that means that even when I did it, a, I did other mitzvahs, but B, even that thing that I did, I wasn't in it with my whole heart. I was torn. So therefore, the state of every Jew, certainly the Bainani, the non-perfect Jew, but the Rebbe wants to argue that even the Tzaddik on some subtle level, the state of every Jew is the state of a modem amixas. He admits partial guilt. He's being claimed by the Yetzirah as is. And he comes back and says, uh-uh, I'm still a good guy. And I'm still not, I'm not in your hands. I got so many mitzvahs. And even the sins, I do half-heartedly. So what do you do? How do you win the claim? How do you avoid falling into his hands again tomorrow and the next day? And the answer is when you have a case when you admit partial guilt, you need to take an oath. What would be the spiritual counterpart here? An oath means that you will get extra energies from above. You'll turn to Hashem and say, I need help. I need extra energies to get me through. Me, myself, my Yetzirah, Sahara, let's call it 50-50. And I can't win. I don't have the edge. But if I get extra help to my tov, if God gives me extra help, then I will be able to win the battle and free myself from coming, falling prey to the Sahara further. And that is hinted in the word oath, because the Hebrew word oath, shrua, is the same unscrambling of the letters as sova, which means to uh, be satisfied, to be energized, which means to be given extra divine inspiration beyond what I normally have on my own, so that I have the edge over the Sahara. In fact, that's uh, the first line of Tanya famously says that before a person is born, he's given an oath that he'll be righteous. And the question is, how will it help? The oath is given to the Nishama. But when he comes down on earth, he's got a body and a heart. And how will the oath that the Nishama took help him to win the, win the battle? And the explanation is that an oath means it empowers. I assume that even a physical oath means it empowers. This when you give an oath in God's name, you're empowered to tell the truth and only nothing but the truth. Similarly, when the soul takes an oath, shrua, it's also so the soul means the soul is empowered with extra energy, and even now when it comes and deals with the body and the animal, so it's able to win the battle and make the decisions. So in our context here, the person who's motive with a who admits partial guilt, translation, all of us, we're all partially in the hand of the earth and partially not. We're trying to avoid further pitfalls and win, so to speak, move on without further sin. The way to do it is to administer an oath translation to evoke heavenly energy for more inspiration for the neshama uh you might say in the 12th step they would call it reach out to your higher power i can't do it myself myself i'm 50-50 to two souls it's a constant battle door to door combat but if i evoke heavenly help i could win i want to know However, like the regular oath, there's a price to pay with, for that. Just like the regular oath is something people shied away from, even if they were telling the truth, because you're holding a Torah, you're evoking God's name, heaven and earth sh- shake and, sh- and shudder. Uh, when you say an oath, and certainly if it's not 100% accurate, it's a scary thing. Similarly, in the spiritual side of the oath, when I ask God for extra heavenly help, now I'm, I'm more culpable if I don't live up to it. And we don't want to take that chance. We don't want to have to ask for extra heavenly help. So there's another route that we could take, and that would be the corresponding to item number four. There's another time when we don't administer the oath, and that was, remember, when his assets devalued. And the spiritual counterpart of that. When could a person in this battle it's avoid taking the oath? Translation, avoid asking for the extra spiritual assistance. When he lives his life in a fashion where he realizes that his assets are going to devalue. He lives his life in a fashion where he counts every single day. And he realizes every day is a gift from God. Every moment is a gift from God. And there's only a certain number of them. And each one is precious. Each one's an opportunity for Torah, for mitzvahs, for goodness. And therefore, he has no time to battle with the Yetzirah. And he says to the Yetzirah, leave me alone. I'll talk to you later. I'll talk to you when I die. Right now, I got nail the moment to live and do mitzvahs. And I got no time. And with this attitude, even though he's technically not necessarily stronger than the Yetzirah, he may be a person who would struggle. However, when he takes on the attitude of can-do, of moving forward, where every day is precious, he will uh, nine times out of ten not fail, because he's busy. It's a very practical approach to living the good life, to living the moral, spiritual life that the Rebbe introduces and encourages very, very strongly. The Rebbe was very into this whole mode of thinking, uh, I heard from the Chassid Rabbi Leiser Shalom, that when he was a yeshiva at the age of like 18, he went into Yechidim with the Rebbe and he wrote on his note all kind of pitfalls, all kind of things that he did wrong, or, or, or character flaws, or whatever it is, things that he was very upset about. And he was asking the Rebbe to help him fix the past, which wasn't uncommon by a of all. And he expected the Rebbe to, to give him a tikut, a way of tshuva, of, un, of undoing the past. And the Rebbe said to him, which was a big surprise to him, the mission of my soul, the Rebbe said, the shlichas of my soul in this world is for the present and the future, not for the past. What's the Rebbe saying? It's not just being sweet and saying we don't care about the past. The Rebbe is introducing that for our generation, the avayda, the main approach, is not so much to look for the past but to move on. What the Rebbe is saying is that the best tshuva is to do the right things henceforth and not to dwell on the past. I assume partially because we're not on the level we, we can do that. It will slap us down and pull us down, melancholy. But also because the Rebbe is empowering us to say, leave alone the past. Let it be. The best shuva is you move on from here and forward. And that was the Rebbe's sort of mission, that he self-proclaimed mission, that I'm here to help you with the present and the future. Because by focusing on the future and, and solely on the future and recognizing that each day is a gift and is precious, the assets are going to devalue if we're going to worry about the past. You will automatically, nine times out of ten, in fact, do the right thing and not fall prey to the eight Zahari, even if you haven't fixed yourself and you haven't evoked heaven and become a bigger spiritual person. And technically, you're still 50 50, you're still at the razor's edge of sin, but you're too busy with mitzvahs. And that was very much the Rabbi's approach. Another story I heard in a similar vein, the Chassid Rabbi Baruch Shemtim, that his first Yechid is with the Rabbi as a yeshiva book. And uh, Again, he was trained by Hasidim. Uh, I believe this is 1953, early on, when he first came to New York, and he was first yechides. He was trained by Hasidim of old, his father and others, that when you go into the Rebbe, you bear your soul, you talk about your iniquities, your spiritual uh, ailments, and uh, you ask the Rebbe to empower you to, to, to give you a tickon, etc. Even for fine uh, uh, quality, character traits, what have you. And he expected to hear that from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe answered him almost in a humorous fashion. This yachidus took place a few days before he was going home, I believe, for Pesach. His parents were living in London. And uh, and uh, the Rebbe said to him, "When well, you're going to take the trip home. I'm not remembering it verbatim. You're going to fly over the ocean. You'll take the melancholy and throw it into the ocean, which is the last thing he expected to hear. He expected to hear that the Rebbe is going to take serious his issues. And the Rebbe going to tell him how to fix it. And the Rebbe said, it's melancholy, just drop it into the ocean, leave it be. And the Rebbe is again setting the stage for his whole approach of his leadership. Hamaise w'ikir. action is paramount. Not just because action is paramount, but because action, will, action will, deal, will, will already evoke the emotion, action will already correct the emotion. Don't sit there and nitpick on the emotion, you'll never get past it. Move forward. Think about the present and the future. And that will automatically in a sense, over time, fix the past and fix the emotion. But most importantly, you'll be busy with good things. You will be focused on the asset of everyday life and how valuable it is. And you won't have time to the to get an edge up on you and to give you an opinion. And the Rebbe Nesicha talks at great length. But this explains the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, the great sage. On his deathbed, was crying, and his student said, "Why are you crying? You lived a life full of Torah and mitzvahs. Why are you crying?" And he said, "I'm crying because I don't know where they're taking me. To heaven or hell, so to speak." And the Rebbe says, "How could he have a, a doubt? He was a perfect tzaddik. Plus, if in fact he had a doubt, maybe out of his humility, why is he only crying now? He should be crying all along. If he had a doubt whether he's going to heaven or hell, so why is he starting to cry on the day of his death?" That means he's doubtful if he's, in fact, fulfilling God's will or not. Surely he wasn't just worried about reward and punishment. He was worried about being connected to the truth. So if he's doubting it, he should have cried before. He should have worried. says the Rebbe, no, the attitude is that until now, he was too busy. He lived on this high road. But even though he was a very righteous person, he didn't stop and think and worry about not only his iniquities, but worry about his how pure his love for God was and how pure his awe for God was, how he was doing spiritually. He was too busy fulfilling his mission every single day. And therefore, he didn't have a chance to look in the mirror and say, hey, how I'm doing. Not how am I doing practically. He knew practically he was righteous. But how am I doing internally? Is my soul beyond capacity of envy and lust and anger and what have you? Or is it not? So on the soul level, he didn't have a chance to take introspection. On the practical level, he knew he was righteous. But what was happening on the soul level, he didn't stop to deal with it because he was someone who had that attitude, there is no time to waste, we got work to do. Only on his deathbed, when he's done. And this is it, there's no other chance. Plus, uh, they probably didn't have any energy to do mitzvahs anyway. He said, hey, you know what, I didn't really worry about how I'm doing internally, which means I'd have to be cleansed, a bit in, in hell or what have you. And that, for that moment, he did give that a second thought. But the Rebbe says, what is he teaching me? He's teaching me that even a person like that shouldn't sit and be obsessed with how am I doing with my Ava and Yira, my love and all of God. I should be obsessed with how am I doing in terms of my service in Hashem? Am I doing what I need to do? Not on what level am I? Certainly you and I (laughs) uh, spend less time or no time focusing on what level I am and rather uh, spending every waking moment focusing on what I need to do and and that is the best way to be. And therefore, that explains the spiritual application of idol number four, that if a person lives in a way of his assets evaluating, which means he's living where every moment is precious, he won't have to take it out. He won't need heavenly assistance. He'll win the battle. He'll win the battle as he is because he's not allowing the Sahara to waste his time. He's not even engaging him. It might be believed that the best way to Overcome negative emotions is by not entertaining them in thought. And thought is in our control, even though emotions are not. And therefore, you're not engaging. And this is spelled out in another verse in the portion. portion says um, in verse 26 there will be no bereaved woman or barren woman in your land I will fill the number of your days and Hasidus explains this verse not just as a promise but also in the spiritual side a form of service as a continuation of verse 25 where it speaks of the service of Hashem and how so how could this be a form of service a bereaved and barren woman means a person who has issues with his love and fear of God because love and fear are called the children how so? Because they're born out of the intellect. A person meditates on God's greatness. He learns a lot of Torah, a lot of Hasidus. He uses the mind to meditate on God. The mind is considered the parents of the emotion, specifically as explained in Tanya, chachma and bina, wisdom and understanding are the father and the mother of emotion. So the mind gives birth through meditation, knowing Hashem, that you start to feel Hashem. And you have children, you have love and fear, and everybody wants children. The righteous, the high-level people, even ordinary but serious servants of Hashem, they'd love to have love and fear of God. They'd love to not just be following the rules of the book, but to feel truly close to Hashem and truly have fear of Hashem, which means the the, the real recognition that God is real and, and he's in the room, and therefore how could you? Everybody wants that, but it's very difficult to come to real love and fear of Hashem. It's a high level, and he struggles with it. And sometimes a person can feel like he's a barren woman, studies Torah, he meditates even, but it never gives birth to children. He doesn't have that love and fear. Or alternatively, he has them, but they die. During prayer, he feels that closeness and that reality of Hashem, and then later, he's able to move on and, 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 and lose that passion to the point that maybe he's able to violate Hashem's wishes. So what happened? That passion, that love, or that fear wasn't real. He didn't really feel Hashem's presence. He didn't really feel Hashem was in the room. Proof is he was able to violate Said it was a passion, but it was momentary. It was a stillborn, God forbid. He's not a barren woman, but he's a bereaved woman. The previous rabbi describes two types of people who have passion for Hashem. One is like a passion of coal, and one is like straw. Straw it's like a newspaper fire. It builds up beautiful, but then it it, it dissipates quickly. It's a bereaved woman. The child goes away. The love is gone. Conversely, you can have a passion of coal, which is much deeper. You don't necessarily see a big flame, but it's hot. It can heat up. It can cook. It can heat up the house for the whole night, which means a deeper Chabad-style love that is sometimes beneath the surface, but real. But that's what this verse is talking about. The person is trying to avoid this issue, this pitfall. And why is it that he has this pitfall in your land? Says the verse. The land artsacha is the same letters as Rutzon, same root as Rutzon, desire. Namely, you have your own agenda. Why is there a problem with your love and fear? Why are you feeling disconnected from Hashem? Because you have your own agenda. It doesn't mean a bad agenda. It's a good agenda. The agenda is to be a God fearing person and to be a servant of Hashem. But he's worried about his levels. He doesn't understand the message of Ryochan and Zakai. You're beside the point, you're here to do a job. No, he's worried about his land, his will, his agenda. He's worried, am I righteous? Am I a lover of Hashem? Am I okay? Am I a good person? And therefore he's going to suffer. Uh, these ailments of a barren or bereaved woman spiritually, God forbid. The, the antidote to this is the second half of the verse, I'll fill the number of your days. This is the attitude of Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai, and Zakkai, that he's busy filling each day. He realizes each day is precious and irreplaceable. And he will um, lose his agenda because he doesn't have time for an agenda. He's busy serving Hashem. And then apparently automatically he won't have issues with the, does he have enough love or not enough love? Does he have fear or not? It's almost like going will be inconsequential. His whole life will be zeroed in on the service of Hashem. He's not focused on agenda. He's focused on filling each of his days.